Well, Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 3. And some of you may remember this. I certainly don't. But if you had a, a ham radio on October 4th, 1957... Maybe some of you do remember that, some of you don't. But if you had one and you tuned it to a certain frequency and pointed it at the sky, there's a reasonable chance you would have heard a steady beeping noise coming at you from the sky. And if you knew what you were listening to and you were an American listening to that, it would have sent cold shivers up and down your spine. Because on October 4th, 1957, Russia, or the Soviet Union, launched, launched Sputnik 1. It was a small metal globe that they sent into orbit around the Earth. And Sputnik 1 was equipped with a radio transmitter, and it could send a radio signal from space to Earth. And any average Joe could turn on their radio and pick up that signal coming from space. Now, it's hard today for us to imagine how unsettling that would have been for people. I mean, nothing had ever been in space before, certainly not orbited the earth, and nothing had been able to send a radio signal back down to earth that any average Joe could pick up from around the world. And so to imagine that the Soviet Union had done that was quite unsettling for people, Um, a little disturbing to think that they were watching over us from the sky, even though Sputnik was just sending a radio signal back to the earth. And it's not an exaggeration to say that that moment, October 4th, 1957, absolutely changed the world. I mean, that moment when they sent Sputnik into orbit around the earth, that ushered in the space race, the space age, I mean, Americans were, rightly so, I think, freaking out over what had happened, and it propelled us to do a whole lot of research and uh, invest a whole lot of money in trying to keep up with the Soviet Union and trying to get ahead of the Soviet Union. And a lot of things changed in that moment. I mean, there were certain attitudes and certain actions that were the result of experiencing that as Americans. And there are certain realities in the world that fundamentally changed daily life. And that was one of those. Many, many people's lives changed as a result of that silly little ball going up into, the, into orbit around, around the globe. And as we've been studying the gospel of Mark together, and we get to Mark chapter 3, one of the things I've tried to emphasize throughout this, and will continue to emphasize, is that when you see the identity of Jesus Christ, and this is something Mark wants you to see, This is almost the basic message of this book. When you see the identity of Jesus Christ and who he is, it is a fundamentally life-altering vision that you see. And it changes everything, or it should change everything about your daily attitudes and actions. You cannot remain the same after seeing who Christ is. And in the book of Mark, when you see who Christ is, there are implications of that for discipleship. And those are the major two themes in the book of Mark. Who Jesus is and the implications of that for daily discipleship. Life has to be altered. Attitudes have to be changed. And that results in a walk with Christ and discipleship to Christ that is very different from what it would have been before. 
And I hope you've been picking up as we've been going through the book that Jesus doesn't do ministry alone. I mean, very early on in chapter one, he calls for men to come and follow him. And then in chapter two, he calls to a tax collector to come and to follow him. And Jesus is in the habit of calling people to come after him and to walk with him and to be his disciples. That's one of the things he does. And he sees discipleship as a necessary outgrowth of his kingdom proclamation. It's not just repent and believe, it's repent and believe. And then he's going to call people to come and to follow him. And that's a key part of his ministry. Disciples, having them come after him. And that's exactly what we find in Mark 3 today, verses 13 to 19. What we're going to see here is the formal organization and calling of the 12 apostles or the 12 disciples. And Jesus calls them to himself out of a much bigger crowd of people and commits them to certain things. And so as we study this passage... I want you to think in terms of discipleship, and then I want you to think in terms of what that means for your daily process of discipleship. There are certain things we can learn from this that impact the way we walk and we follow Christ every single day. So today, I want to show you three forces of discipleship, okay? Three forces of discipleship. And I I describe them as forces because these forces of discipleship are going to fundamentally reshape the way you think about being a follower of Christ. So three forces of discipleship that construct, they build our walk as followers of Christ. They give direction and purpose and meaning to what we're doing as disciples of Jesus Christ, all right? So the first one of these is the disciples' creation. The disciples' creation, okay? The disciples' creation, and this is found in verses 13 and the first part of verse 14. How does discipleship begin? And when you think about being a disciple, the beginning of this process gives shape and purpose to how the process continues. So what you're doing this week as a disciple was started at a particular point in time, and how it started gives purpose and meaning to what's happening today in your life. Look at verse 13 here. And Jesus, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, it's not an accident here that Jesus goes up on a mountain to do this. There are certain geographical indications in the book of Mark that he wants us to notice, and this is one of those. Jesus goes up on a mountain. It's not accidental that Mark mentions this here. He goes up on this mountain to formally call the disciples, and if you think back to the book of Exodus, when Israel was officially recognized as a nation and called into existence, God called Moses up onto a mountain. And as he did that, this is what he said concerning Israel. Exodus 19, this is a key passage in your Old Testament history. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
And the point here is that God is in the habit of calling people to himself and then using them to accomplish his purposes. That's what he does with the disciples here, and that's what he did with Israel back in the Old Testament. In fact, this this type of activity goes back even further than Israel. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God creates them and then gives them a task to accomplish. They're to represent him and image him for the entire earth, over the whole earth. Then think ahead to Genesis chapter 12. God calls Abraham to himself. He calls him to trust him, and then he promises that he's going to bless all the nations through Abraham. He's going to fulfill his promises through him. And so God puts these people in place, Adam and Eve, Abraham, the nation of Israel, the kings later on. He puts all of these people in place. He calls them to himself, and he puts them in place in order to accomplish his purposes. And his purpose is to overcome the effects of the fall. It's to institute his rule and reign in the world and to reverse the impact of sin. Now, obviously, all those people in the Old Testament, those groups, weren't able to accomplish this. But we arrive to someone special here in Mark chapter 3 who will be able to accomplish this. But notice in verse 13... This type of calling, just like in the Old Testament, doesn't come on the disciples' terms. Abraham wasn't seeking God out when God called to him. And look at who is doing the action here in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. Jesus is the one initiating. He's the one that is calling to them here. Now, let me just remind you, we talked about this back at the beginning of this series in Mark, but let me remind you here that this is very, very unique at this time. I mean, there were lots of master or teacher disciple relationships in the ancient world. This was very common, but what wasn't common was for the master or the teacher to call to the disciples. Typically what happened was the disciple would seek out the the teacher and would say, I want to follow you. I want to learn from you. But here it's the opposite way around. Jesus has the audacity and the authority to call to the disciples to bring them to himself and then to set their course and their trajectory based on his purposes and what he has for them. This sets the work And the learning and the process of discipleship on Jesus' terms and his goals and his plans. One author, one commentator said this about the disciples. The disciples are thus not following a new teacher, but God himself. They are not involved in a human movement, but in the unfolding of the kingdom and rule of God. They are captivated by God's ultimate reversal of the consequences of humankind's rebellion against its maker. I mean, this is not just another disciple-teacher relationship. This is something dramatically different for these disciples. And it's no different when it comes to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're in the same pattern and the same line as these disciples We have received grace from Christ. He has called to us. This is not an earned thing that we have sought out and and been good enough to have received. 
We are called out of sin and darkness into his light in order to have a purpose and a goal and to help bring his kingdom and rule according to his plans and his purposes, not our own desires. And as you see this and you think about our fitting into this plan and being disciples of Christ, I want you to see that this goes back into the Old Testament and forward at the same time, forward to the church as well. It reaches back into the Old Testament and reaches forward to us in the church. Look at the beginning of verse 14. As Christ calls, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. Now, it's hard to read here and throughout the Gospels that Jesus appointed 12, specifically 12, and not think back to the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, later in the Gospels, in Luke, I think in Matthew as well, Jesus says that the 12 apostles are going to sit on the throne ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there's a connection here between the Old Testament, Israel, and Christ's purposes here. And if you remember back into your Old Testament, when Israel went into exile, they sinned, they messed up, they broke the covenant, they went into exile, they were out of the land of Israel, In the prophets, God made several promises to the nation of Israel that he would come to them. That's what we've seen at the beginning of Mark. And that he would work with them and he would redeem them and he would be gracious to them. One of those is found in Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is, to, to, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so I think when Jesus calls the 12 here, he's reaching back to Isaiah, to other passages and saying, this is the fulfillment of God, that he is coming to Israel and working with the nation of Israel again. And it's his way of saying that the restoration of Israel is going to come through me. I'm the servant who's going to bring Jacob back. And here's how I'm doing it with this remnant of men. This movement is going to start here. So it reaches backward into the Old Testament, this discipleship, but it also reaches forward to the purpose for the disciples after Christ ascends to the Father. You know this passage very well. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the primary task that the disciples were given. They're to go to all nations. They're to be that light to the nations. And this is the task that you and I are engaged in. We're a result of this work being done. And we are to continue to perpetuate this work. And this starts, well, it starts all the way back in Genesis 3. But in our passage, it starts with Jesus calling these 12 disciples, apostles to himself. God returned to his people as he promised he would. He called them to himself. And now he calls you and I to be grafted into these covenant promises and to take this word to the nations. 
That is our creation as disciples. And how this began determines what the shape of our discipleship looks like. It's a force that impacts how we live this week. And that brings us to our second force of discipleship. We've seen the disciples' creation. And next, we're going to see the disciples' charge. Verses 14b and verse 15 here. So, this group of disciples is created. Jesus calls the twelve to himself. But what does he expect of them? What does discipleship look like? Well, I, I love this text because it's so simple. Jesus gives them three things that discipleship looks like. Look at verse 14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, and here are the three things. So that they might be with him. That's first. And he might send them out to preach. That's second. And have authority to cast out demons. So what does he do? Three things. They're to be with him. They're to speak for him. And they're to act on his behalf. They're to be with him presence wise. They're to speak for him. And they're to act on his behalf. That's what it looks like to be a disciple. First and foremost, being a disciple of Jesus is about being with him. That's what it looks like. That's what it meant for these 12 men. They were called to be with Jesus. Now, as you're reading through the book of Mark, as we go along, you're not going to see many of these names again. I mean, you'll see Peter, you know, you'll see James and John, but most of these, you'll see Judas, but most of these names, you're not going to see these names again. But as you're reading, you'll read about this group of disciples and you'll know that these guys are always with Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple. They were watching. They were close to him. They were learning from him because they were in his presence. And as I read that and the, just the beauty and simplicity of that statement, they, he called them so they could be with him. We make discipleship, I make discipleship so difficult sometimes, so complicated. All these, all these guidelines and rules and expectations and all of that for a disciple. When really, when you boil it down, what does it mean to be a disciple? You're with Jesus. You are in his sweet presence. This is a very clear and simple understanding of what being a follower of Christ looks like. And I think the other gospels bear this out. I mean, John 15, think about the imagery there of abiding in the vine. And that's what this is, being with him, being close to him, proximity, dwelling with Jesus. So what does this mean for us in daily discipleship, to be with Christ? Well, I know for me, as I read about being with him, this sounds like something that is slow. But my life of discipleship is seemingly very often very frantic and very hurried. And it's like I'm trying to, to check off all these things that I have to do to be a disciple. And maybe for some of us, the best things we can do, the best thing we can do as a follower of Christ is just to slow down a little bit and to be with him. Listen to how one author described this. I love it. In other words... What makes you a disciple is not turning up from time to time, 
Discipleship may literally mean being a student in the strict Greek sense of the word, but it doesn't mean turning up once a week for a course or even a sermon. It's not an intermittent state. It's a relationship that continues. Being a disciple, a learner, in that sense, is a state of being in which you are looking and listening without interruption. And the same author, Rowan Williams, described being a disciple as similar to bird watching. <laughs> I'm not a bird watcher, but I love that imagery. Those of you maybe that are bird watchers, what do you do? Well, you don't rush as a bird watcher, do you? You don't run outside for five minutes with your binoculars. No, you, you sit and you're quiet and you wait and you're attentive and you're looking Bird watching requires uninterrupted time and space. And that's what it means to be with Jesus. So for us, what does it mean? It means shutting down social media. It means turning off the TV. And it means finding space and time to, to be with Christ in an uninterrupted way. And I know that's difficult in our culture and in our world. I have four kids and a new puppy. <laughs> It's not easy to do this, but this is what it means to be a disciple. So try to find space and time to, to be with Jesus. Now, when you think about being with Christ in this sort of way, this attentiveness to him and walking with him, following him, sometimes that is going to take you to places that you did not anticipate. I mean, these disciples, they didn't know all the places they were going to go when they started this process, did they? They just knew they were to be with Christ. And as we commit to being with Christ in our lives and in his presence, we're going to end up in places that maybe we didn't anticipate and probably we would not have chosen for ourselves. And the thing about being a disciple, a follower of Christ, is that Christ sets the agenda, not you and I. We follow him. A disciple doesn't drag his master around everywhere that he wants to go. A disciple follows the master and lets him make the appointments. And when that happens, there are times where you're going to end up in places that you certainly didn't anticipate. Mark chapter 8 describes this to us. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Being a disciple means walking the path of the cross. It means walking through difficulties, through trials, through loss, through suffering, through pain. It means denying ourselves over and over again. It means serving others in daily life. Not being concerned for my own desires. But it also means understanding that the path that Jesus sets for you as a disciple, when you follow him, the path of the cross, what does it say in verse 35? Forever, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. True joy and reward come from walking the path of the cross as you follow your savior as a disciple. So walk with him. No matter where it takes you. 
So being a disciple of Jesus means being with him, but it also means speaking for him. I mean, you can see that here in verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Now, as we go through the book of Mark, you're going to see in Mark chapter 6, if you want to read ahead later this afternoon, Jesus calls the disciples here. He organizes them into a group. And then in Mark chapter 6, after a little bit of time with him and a little bit of training, he sends them out to preach for him. They go out on mission for him. It's sort of like a a test run of what's going to happen after Jesus ascends to the Father. They go out for Christ, and they're supposed to preach the gospel of the kingdom. They weren't supposed to make up a message of their own. They weren't supposed to come up with something that they wanted to share with the various towns they went into. They were to go out after being with Christ, and they were to speak the message that he gave to them to speak. And that's what you and I are to do as disciples, as followers of Christ. We are to go out and proclaim news, news that we have received from him. Imagine if I started checking my mailbox this week and I noticed that I was still getting my mail, my bills and all the other stuff that comes in my mailbox, but mixed in with my With my regular mail, I started to receive little handwritten notes from my mailman. Now, I have no, I don't even know my mailman's name, but if I started to receive personal notes from my mailman telling me things to do, maybe, you know, your gutter needs to be fixed on the side of your house and all of that. And then as the weeks progress, I start to see less and less of my mail. I don't get bills anymore, which that might be a blessing, at least for a while. But all I receive from my mailman is personal notes and suggestions and stories about his life. And if that happened for very long at all, I would file a complaint pretty quickly. And I would say, you are a mailman. You are supposed to deliver my mail. I'm not interested in your personal life and your suggestions about how to maintain my house. Gardening tips. You are supposed to deliver the mail that has been sent to me and give it to me as it came to you. That's your job. That's your task. And that's exactly what you and I are supposed to do with the gospel of the kingdom. We're with Christ. We learn the gospel of the kingdom here on Sundays in our personal devotions. And then we go out and we speak that gospel. We don't make up the message. We don't edit the message. We receive it and we pass it along to the world as is. That's what we do as followers of Christ. So we're with him. We speak for him. And then lastly, in verse 15, we act on his behalf. Look at verse 15. The end of 14, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You've seen in the gospel of Mark so far, Jesus several times has come in contact with people who are possessed by demons and he casts them out by his authority. And you're going to see in Mark chapter 6, when the disciples go out on mission for Jesus, they're going to receive his authority to cast out demons. They're supposed to act in line with the reality of his kingdom arrival. I mean, Jesus casts out demons to show that his kingdom is breaking into the present world. And his disciples are supposed to to act in accordance with that reality, if that makes sense. Now... 
This is not saying that you and I have the authority to go around and cast out demons. That's not what it's calling us to. But what this is calling us to is to act on Christ's behalf, to act in line with the arrival of his kingdom. This means living out the customs and the realities of Christ's kingdom. You and I are citizens of an earthly kingdom now, the United States of America. And if you've ever been on a mission trip overseas, a lot of times when you do that, they'll give you some of the most basic customs of the country that you're going to. They'll say, don't do this. You have to do this or else you will offend the people that are there because they have a different culture and different customs. We have a particular culture that's very ingrained in us. It's very natural. We take it for granted. Christ's kingdom has a particular culture. And you and I are to think of ourselves as primarily citizens of that kingdom. And we are to bring that culture and those customs into our lives in the present. And as followers of Christ, we're to live those customs out in our daily lives. And so being a disciple is not just a matter of being with Christ and of speaking for him. It's a matter of a change in your behavior. You're supposed to live out a different lifestyle as a disciple of Christ. That's what this is calling us to, acting on behalf of Christ. One author, the same author, Rowan Williams, said it this way. The disciple is not there to jot down ideas and then go away and think about them. The disciple is where he or she is in order to be changed. So that the way in which he or she sees and experiences the whole world changes. Everything about us is to be, to be, to showcase the culture of heaven and the culture of Christ's kingdom. That's what we're called to as followers of Christ. And when you do that, there are going to be times where you are an oddball in this culture. And that's okay. There are also going to be times where you live out a life of self-sacrifice and love and grace and patience and kindness and you showcase the fruit of the spirit and people are going to be attracted to that because of the way you're living that's what christ's kingdom culture calls us to so that's the disciples charge we've seen the disciples creation and then lastly the disciples course the disciples course this is the last force of discipleship that impacts the way you and i live our lives as disciples every day and this is in verses 16 to 19 let me read this to you it's a list of names all right he appointed the 12 here they are simon to whom he gave the name peter james the son of zebedee and john the brother of james to whom he gave the name boanerges that is sons of thunder Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So here they are. It's the list of the 12 apostles. Now, I already told you that you read all these names and maybe maybe some of you hardly ever seen these names before because some of the names just aren't that familiar to us. We don't really know a lot about them at all. And there there have been there have been studies on all of these individuals. There have been books written about this whole group, about the different men and what their lives looked like, what they did after Christ died and rose and ascended to the Father, analyzing all of these different guys by name, by personality, by leadership ability, all of that stuff. 
But I want you to think of these men, and I want to think for just a moment of these men as they're described to us in the Gospel of Mark. All right, so we're going to stick kind of to the book of Mark here as we think about these men. And as you read through Mark, you don't see a lot of them mentioned individually. Instead, what you see is you see them mentioned as a group. They're with Jesus, but over and over again, you will see the disciples. The disciples questioned him. They asked him this. They were sent out on a mission. They're described as a group of 12. Some of you may remember last week, I told you to think about the crowds in verses 7 through 12. We saw the crowds. I said, you need to think about the crowds in the the book of Mark as almost like a literary character. They have certain qualities and they do certain things. The crowds do. Well, I want you to think about this group of the disciples in the same way. It's like a character in the book. What do we read about this group throughout the book of Mark? As you're going along, you'll read about them over and over again. What do we see about this group? Well, we see a lot of different things. They ask Jesus questions over and over again, and that's a good thing. They're always with him. They're witnessing miracles. They see him do a variety of of great works. But as you go along in the book, you see that this group of men, this, this group of disciples, they don't really understand who Jesus is. I mean, they're not, they're not quite getting it. They see these miracles, but then in chapter 4, you're going to see them go, who then is this? They don't understand fully who Jesus is. They don't get it quite yet. Peter recognizes Jesus in Mark 8. But then right after he recognizes him and makes a very strong affirmation of Christ, then he rebukes Jesus for saying he's going to go to the cross and go to Jerusalem. And so he's really not fully understanding a sacrificing Messiah who's going to die. The disciples see the feeding of the 5,000. We'll read this later on, but they don't get it. Jesus questions them about it, and they don't understand what's going on there. And Jesus actually rebukes them for failing to grasp the significance of that miracle. And so all of that and other, other situations as well give us a picture of these disciples as both positive and negative. I mean, they're with Jesus. They're asking questions. They're trying to understand, but we also see them lacking faith. We see James and John arrogantly asking to be seated at Christ's right and left hand in the kingdom. I mean, there's some wonderful things about the disciples, but there's also some pretty negative things. They're going to work miracles on his behalf, and then they're going to argue about who's the greatest among them. They trust him. They follow him, and then at the end, they all flee and they deny him. And all of that gives us a picture of these disciples as a mixed bag. Throughout this book. And the disciples are not the main character in the book of Mark, but discipleship is a a primary theme in this book and what it means to be a disciple. And so there's something we can learn from looking at these men as a group and seeing the mixed bag that they are in the Gospel of Mark. And what we learn about discipleship, when you read this list of names here, if you go back and, and even study some of the details of this list of names, What you see here is all sorts of men with all sorts of personalities from all different backgrounds, different lots in life, different jobs. And what you see is a group of men who are sinners. They are broken. They are weak in many ways. And these guys definitely did not fulfill perfectly the charge that Jesus gave them to be with him, to preach for him, 
and to act on his behalf. In Mark 9, they can't cast a demon out. Jesus tells them that they, they have little faith. And that's what we see here with these guys. But as you see this mixed bag, it's important to remember how these 12 men came to be disciples of Christ in the first place. How did they get to this position that they're in? Well, we saw it in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. These guys are in this position because Jesus called to them. And the teaching about discipleship in the gospel of Mark is not primarily about what the disciples do and how amazing they are. It's about what Jesus does through them. One commentator said this, and I love this. Discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. Man, that's encouraging. (laughs) That's wonderful. And I think getting this backwards, thinking that discipleship is about what you and I can do for Christ, that becomes a subtle shift in our thinking. It's like getting your tires knocked out of alignment a little bit. And if you start and just let your car drift on that, it's not bad at first, but you really end up off the road rather quickly when that happens. And that's what goes on here when we start to think that discipleship is primarily about what I can do for Jesus. But that's what we think most of the time, isn't it? We're kind of conditioned to think that. What am I going to do for Christ today? How am I going to spend my life for him? And so it's like we put all the emphasis on what I can do for Jesus, paying this debt back to him that I owe. And so we make it all about our work for him and our effort for Jesus. And so then when you do that, Christianity becomes this performance-based thing. And I've got to do the, the best that I can every day. And that just crushes you under the weight of the expectations that are there and the requirements that are there. But I think true Christianity is far different from those sort of expectations. True Christianity is about Jesus Christ primarily, and it's about what he can make of disciples. It starts with him, and then we respond to that. We respond to his work. And the amazing thing about discipleship is that Jesus has promised to be with us, and he has promised to make something magnificent of us as we're with him and as we pursue discipleship with him. I want to show you a couple passages. The Apostle Paul wrote. These aren't on the screen, but listen to these. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you know what this means? It means that your growth and progress as a disciple is based on the character of God. It's based on his faithfulness. He began the work in you. He's going to see to it that that work is fully completed in you. If God is to be trusted as faithful, then he's going to work in you to be the disciple that he wants you to be. Now... The question naturally arises when you talk like that, well, then why do anything at all? 
Why not just sit here and God's going to do all the work and make me the disciple that he wants me to be? Why not just assume that he's going to take care of everything? Well, if you look over in Philippians chapter 2, Paul answers that question. Chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why do you work it out? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you. He will work in you as a follower of him. When he calls you to himself, he'll begin the good work. He'll complete it by giving you the desire to pursue him and by helping you to actually do the work. I mean, that's what verse 13 says, both to will and to work. And ultimately, all of that, your life as a disciple is all for the good pleasure of Jesus Christ. It's all about him in the end. And so as you're a disciple, as you're with him, as he works in you to give you the desire, you will perform the good works that he has promised that you need to do in Ephesians 2.10. He's created us for good works. And I think one of the ways that we're motivated to do the good works is not by putting the burden of expectation on us that it's all about what I can do for Christ. But one of the ways we actually get the affection and the love for him is by understanding that he called us and he's going to do the work in us to faithfully complete the project that he started in us. And I think these men that are listed in Mark chapter three, they're wonderful examples of this, aren't they? They're broken, they're weak, they're doing the best they can, but what does Jesus do in them? He walks with them, he's faithful, they even deny him, and he still comes back to them, forgives them for that, forgives Peter in particular, and then he gives them his Holy Spirit to work in them the desire to pursue holiness and righteousness and to speak for him. And then when you turn over to the book of Acts, it's unbelievable. These guys that just ran away from him are powerfully preaching through the spirit, proclaiming Christ, and they're consistently pursuing life with Jesus, speaking for him and acting on his behalf as disciples. And that's the beauty of the work of Christ. And what that requires of us is to turn our eyes toward him and see his goodness and see what he wants for us in our relationship to him as disciples. So my encouragement to you this week is to do that. Turn your eyes toward him. Trust him to work in you both to will and to do to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we are certainly inadequate as followers of you. There's not a person in here who has not failed and tripped up this week, Lord. And yet we also understand that you are the one who initiates and calls us to yourself. Even as you did these disciples, you call us to be with you, to speak for you and to act on your behalf in love and kindness. And so because you have initiated that work in us, as Philippians says, you will be faithful to complete that work through your Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so we pray even today that you would 
Give us the desire, Lord. So often we lack the desire to do the work that you've called us to. But we pray that by your spirit, you would inflame those affections and those desires for you so that we would be able to to walk with you and spend time with you and speak for you and act on your behalf, Lord. We thank you for the work that you did in these imperfect men that we see here that are listed in Mark chapter 3. What an encouragement it is to us to know that the entire world was changed through the proclamation of these men. And so we ask for the same grace from the same gracious King and God. Work in us with your Holy Spirit even now, Father. Inflame our hearts to love Christ more. Thank you for what you're going to do in us as disciples this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.